What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. Welcome back, my friends. I'm excited to have you here for our conversation with Richard Capriola. Richard has been a mental health and addictions counselor for over two decades. He has been licensed in Illinois and Texas and recently retired as an addictions counselor at Menninger Clinic in Houston. While there, he treated both adults and adolescents with substance use disorders. He is the author of a new book for parents, The Addicted Child a parent's guide to adolescent substance abuse. Now, if you're listening and thinking, oh, this topic doesn't apply to me, so I'll catch next week's episode, I encourage you to stay on because I also, having a son who is currently 12 at the time of this recording, felt like this may or may not apply to me. But after I read his book and really started talking to Richard, I realized that this is a much more expansive issue that we really should all be talking about. Whether or not it's directly for our kids or somebody we know, the likelihood that we're going to at some point be exposed to a substance abuse, substance use disorder is high. So I highly encourage you to listen to the amazing gold nuggets that Richard shares from his lengthy experience in this space. And again, if you're thinking, oh, we don't have any substance abuse in our family, we also talk about screen time. So we also talk about cell phones and video games and the things that our kids are distracting themselves with, especially during this time of the pandemic. So Again, this is a much more expansive topic than even I, I think, admittedly knew before this conversation. So here is my conversation with Richard. I am so excited to welcome my guest today, Richard Capriola. We just chatted a little bit about our Italian connection there. So I'm excited to bring on a fellow Italian. He is doing some and has done some really amazing work in the world and is now sharing it with uh, so many, including us. So thanks for being on today, Richard. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the opportunity to talk to me. So thank you very much for having me here. Absolutely. All right. As we always start, I would love to know what does true wellness mean to you? Well, wellness to me carries a, a number of different uh, dimensions. There is uh, uh, physical wellness, there is mental wellness, there is spiritual wellness. So it comes in a lot of different uh, dimensions, but overall, I would characterize it as a sense of well-being, a sense of feeling good, uh, helping others feel good, uh, doing good uh, deeds uh, for, for, for people that we care about and for our communities. So wellness to me is more of a comprehensive outlook on, on how you approach life, both as an individual, as a member of society, as a member of the community. 
I love the pulling in of the community as well. And I definitely agree with the comprehensive approach. So thank you for sharing that. I love that. All right, let's dive into your history. So tell us a little bit about Richard, what the work is that you have been doing and what sort of guided you and led you to write the book that you recently wrote. Well, i am been a uh, a worker in education for many, many years. I actually started out in education, working in Illinois for the state education agency for over 30 years. Um, And then um, I began working uh, in the area of mental health at the same time um, and took a position as a counselor at a regional mental health crisis center. And we would have people come to our crisis center from the emergency rooms and we would house them for a period of time. And I noticed that they not only had a uh, psychological or mental health issue, but they also had a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the University of Illinois and got a master's degree in addictions counseling, continued to work um, for the mental health crisis center for a number of years until I accepted a position with Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Menninger Clinic is a psychiatric hospital serving both adults and adolescents who have psychiatric issues. Uh, But a high, high percentage of their patients also have a substance abuse issue. So I was hired by Menninger to be an addictions counselor for adolescents as well as adults. And I worked there for over 10 years. Um, Retired about uh, a little over a year ago. And that's when I set about uh, writing this book uh, on adolescent substance abuse, because in my work with adolescents and their families, uh, I began to see that there was a tremendous need to help people understand what is going on with adolescent substance abuse? How serious is it? And how does it affect families? And how does it affect children? And what kind of resources and help can, can be provided to families? So I set about writing this book, The Addicted Child. Um, and uh, it is now out there available for families uh, for, at Amazon and also the book's website. Wonderful. Thank you for giving us that background. Um, certainly you have the years of experience to be able to, to share these insights. And so I, I love that you have turned that into something tangible that we can all benefit from. And I have read your book. It is fantastic. It's an easy read, but it's super packed with great information. I think every parent could benefit and we'll dive into how it even would be great for parents who don't necessarily think this applies to them, or at least, you know, don't, don't really see that as an issue in their family, but um, you pull in a lot of really great insights for everyone to read. So in your book, and it's called the addicted child, a parent's guide to adolescent substance abuse. You start by saying very few things are more destructive to a family than having someone, especially a child addicted to drugs or alcohol. So let's kind of start by expanding on that, I think it's important to share why this topic is so important and what kinds of destruction you have seen over the years and those who have been addicted. I I think what I have seen from parents is, first of all, a surprise um, when they learn that their child is involved in alcohol or drugs. Um, One of the most common responses I I received when I would sit down with families and, and, and talk to them about their their child's history of using alcohol or drugs and give them the diagnosis of uh, substance abuse disorder. One of the most frequent responses I heard from the families was something like, I had no idea this was going on. 
or if they did suspect their child may be using alcohol or drugs, they were, they were really surprised at the extent of the use. They were really caught off guard and surprised. And, and then there is the underlying issue that in so many kids, not only is there an alcohol and drug abuse problem, there's an underlying mental health issue that accompanies it. And I think in some respects, that's more disturbing to the parents than the alcohol or drugs. When they learn that their child has a severe anxiety issue, or it has a severe depression issue, or might have some post-traumatic uh, thought disorders um, that are accompanying the alcohol and drug abuse. These are very disturbing findings for a family. And I think it points to the fact that it's not just the child who goes through the trauma of having a, uh, a severe substance abuse issue. It's also the family system that's upset. And, 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 it, and it involves a whole range of emotions that parents have to go through. And I think uh, that is one of the reasons that prompted me to write this book was to see the pain and the anguish that so many families go through as they struggle to come to terms with this issue of having a child who's addicted to alcohol or drugs and may also have an underlying psychological issue that, that is very disturbing for them. So all of these emotions come together as parents. And I wanted to give them a book, a, a brief book that would help them understand a little bit better about what's going on. And more importantly, give them a roadmap for help so that they felt that there is hope for their child. There is hope for their family. So by reading this book, they receive a lot of information about what's going on in a very concise manner that hopefully helps him feel a little bit better about the entire process, but more importantly, gives them some hope that recovery is possible for both their child and their family. And yeah, you definitely have successfully done that. I can speak from experience in reading it. I think it's a fantastic book and uh, definitely gives hope. But I think, you know, it also gives us information that maybe many of us are trying to ignore or run from or not, or not accept or, you know, uh, validate. And so we will talk a little bit about some of the stats that might be um, enlightening for some or certainly enlightening for me, but just kind of going off of what you just mentioned in the underlying mental health issues, what did you see through your years of exposure to this of what has led kids to, you know, take the first, you know, smoke of a joint or, or, you know, or make the move to cocaine or what, is it clear or is it still very unclear as to, you know, whether it was the underlying mental health disorder that wasn't treated or it was just in an otherwise healthy kid. It was just a moment of vulnerability. What's sort of your insights as to what, what makes a child make that decision to jump into that? Well, there is no one common variable that, that applies to all kids. I, I think certainly for some kids, it is just uh, peer pressure. It's, uh, it's who they're hanging out with. It's what their friends are doing, and they just want to join in. Um, uh, so some of it is involved in the social situations that kids are involved in. Um, some of it is uh, the, the availability of drugs. We know, for example, that um, uh, kids find it very easy to, to find uh, drugs like marijuana and alcohol. Almost 80% of seniors will tell you it's very easy for them to get marijuana if they choose to do so. Another 30% will tell you it's very easy for them to get a drug like LSD if they want to. 
So some of it is the wide availability of these drugs. Um, certainly a portion of it is who they're hanging out with and who their friends are. And if they're using, they're more likely to get captured by it. And then there's the, the issue of, uh, for, for some, not all, but for some kids, there is an underlying psychological reason why they're using substances. Um, for example, a, a large number of the uh, teenage boys and girls that, that I worked with who were smoking a lot of marijuana multiple times a day, when I asked them to help me understand why they were using so much marijuana, the number one answer that I got from them was it helps my anxiety. I smoke marijuana because it helps my anxiety. Now for other kids, it might be depression. Uh, it might be some type of intolerable thoughts or memories that they're having. So for some, not all, but for some kids, there is an underlying issue of say anxiety or depression that they're using the substance to medicate with. Um, so it, it varies from child to child. The circumstances uh, vary from child to child. And that's why as a parent, my book emphasizes if you suspect your child is using a substance, it's important for you to get a comprehensive assessment, not just on the alcohol and drugs, but on any underlying issues that may be causing your child to use alcohol or drugs. So it's important that you find out through a comprehensive assessment what's going on with your child. Because there are so many different reasons as to why a child turns to a substance like alcohol or drugs. Mm, really important points. I think a lot of us who don't work in this field or don't have a whole lot of experience, some of that can be interesting and shocking. And I, I think even the use of the word anxiety by you know that age is even just interesting for me that that they would recognize that that's what's happening and then use that word. I don't even know that I had that word necessarily in my language or vocabulary as much at that age. So it's all, it's all very interesting and enlightening. And I'm really happy that you're sharing this as we kind of talk about sort of the statistics and how far this goes. Um, and I, you know, this was interesting and kind of shocking for me, but as I read your book, you mentioned that 15% of eighth graders use illicit drugs. And so, you know, my son's in seventh grade. So I was just like, this hits pretty home, hard home for me. Um, and so what are some of the other sort of statistics that parents should know just about how widespread of an issue this is not to you know, kind of incite fear, but just more of an awareness of, of how much we should really start paying attention to this. Well, that's really what it is all about, Claudia. It is about building awareness, not fear. It's about helping parents understand what's out there, not, not to scare them, not to, not to frighten them, but just so that they have an understanding, they have some knowledge about what's out there. We know, for example, that alcohol and marijuana continue to be uh, the most popular drugs among adolescents, and that's been true for a long, long time. But what we're seeing recently in the last few years is a surge, a tremendous increase in adolescents turning to vaping substances. Vaping is where they take a substance, um, they use a, a vaping pen or an instrument that turns a substance into a vapor, which they then inhale into their lungs. So we're seeing a tremendous increase in vaping. For example, um, uh, three years ago, um, only about 9% of seniors were vaping marijuana. Today, it's more like 22%. 
three years ago, maybe 18% of teenagers, seniors were vaping nicotine. Now it's almost 35% of, of seniors are vaping uh, nicotine. So we have seen a tremendous surge in kids turning to vaping of substances. And some of the research that's out there for both adults and kids who vape, they are starting to report difficulty in things like concentration and, and, and remembering things. Students, for example, who start vaping between the ages of eight and 13 were more likely to report difficulty concentrating and remembering than those who started vaping even after age 14. So we're just now beginning to see some of the consequences of this surge of vaping of things like nicotine and, 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 uh, and marijuana in the adolescent population. Among the harder core drinks, uh, harder core substances, um, we're not seeing such large increases. Maybe 4% of seniors are using LSD, another 3% are using cocaine. Uh, we are seeing some abuse of prescription medications, primarily things like Ritalin and Adderall, um, uh, but nowhere near the type of uh, exposure that we're seeing to uh, with things like um, marijuana, alcohol, and particularly now the vaping of substances. That's becoming more and more of a problem. Yeah, a lot of these stats were pretty shocking to me. And, uh, you know, I, I largely felt like I was coming out from under a rock because I had no idea it was that type of a statistic, even among seniors. So it's it's really very enlightening for me as well. You kind of mentioned, um, you know, Ritalin, and let's talk a little bit about the stimulants, because I think that this can go unnoticed. Um, you know, I think we're aware of you know, cocaine, we're aware of marijuana, um, but ADHD meds are definitely being prescribed at a higher rate. And um, of course, it also includes meth and cocaine. But wh why are or what are you finding? Why are kids abusing these prescription drugs as um, as much as they are now? And what are some of the long term harms from these? Because, you know, a lot of parents you know, if it, you take a, your kid to, to the doctor and um, this is the diagnosis that comes along. And then of course you want to treat it because we want our kids to have a favorable experience in school and um, be able to, you know, be attentive to the teachers. It, you know, I don't think a lot of parents are necessarily questioning if the next step is an ADHD med. So I think highlighting the abuse of this, uh, why, you know, what you're seeing as far as the ADHD meds go and what some of the long-term harms are. Well, you're right. Many, many parents take their child to uh, a physician after perhaps getting some reports from, from the, the educators, their teachers, that their child may be struggling with attention problems um, in school, in the classroom. It may be affecting their grades. So, you know, they want to find out if they can help their child and they take their child in, they, the child gets assessed and there's a, a diagnosis perhaps of ADHD and uh, they're prescribed these medications. And, and these medications are very effective. They help many, many people. Uh, but the problem starts to to happen like with any prescription drug, um, the, the, the student starts to abuse them. They may take them more frequently. They may take them at higher doses. Um, and, and then we know that in schools, uh, some, some kids are selling their prescriptions of Adderall and Ritalin to other kids. So my advice to parents is for all prescription medications that anyone in the family is taking, 
you need to make sure that those medications are secure, that your child just doesn't have uh, complete and total access to those medications uh, because kids are very clever. Uh, they're able to fly under the radar, so to speak. Um, and, and, and it's not that these medications are bad because they're not, they're very effective when used appropriately and under supervision. But uh, whether it's alcohol or prescription medications, parents should make sure that the alcohol that they have in their house, the prescription medications, and even the over-counter, over-the-counter medications are, um, are, are, are monitored and uh, secure so that their kids don't have easy access to them. Really important points and just highlight so why it's so important for us as parents to be so attentive because we think, you know, it's it's hard to parent. It's hard to we're, think we're doing the right thing by, you know, treating our child with the medication as prescribed by the doctor. And while we might be seeing benefits from an attentive standpoint, there are these concerns and we often don't know what's being discussed at school. And and yeah, if, if one of the pills is being thrown into a backpack and being sold there, I mean, so many things could be happening without our knowledge. So I think it's important what you mentioned as far as keeping an eye, not making it so easily accessible and, um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe occasionally just taking another count and seeing if it makes sense based on the day's supply. So um, that's, that's definitely a a pharmacy way of dealing with things. So, okay, let's kind of talk a little bit about what maybe people didn't come here thinking this was going to be about, which was including screens and devices. And I love that you included this because, you know, certainly my, my ears kind of popped open a little bit more because I, you know, my son's 12. I don't really have any concerns with regard to illicit substances at this point. And um, hopefully I won't, but I'm obviously open to being aware of what's going on, but screens and devices are absolutely a problem. And I see that with my own son, that the amount of usage, uh, I, and I, you know, I think back to our childhood, we, you know, before we even had computers, like, what did we even do? You know, I don't even, kids don't even know what to do with themselves if they're not on a screen. So talk a little bit about the use and abuse of screens and devices and why we need to consider this as we talk about addiction in general. Well, that's a great question because, um, you know, we're all generally familiar with what we call chemical addictions. These are things like the alcohol and drugs we've been talking about. But there's another set of addictions, which we, which we refer to as process addictions. These are behavioral type addictions. Um, examples would include Um, uh, things like self-injury, eating disorders, and I have an entire chapter in my book on process disorders like eating disorders, self-injury, gaming, cell phone use, things like this. These can all become compulsive types of behaviors uh, which can affect performance and, and attitudes. And unfortunately, the pandemic that everybody has been going through has affected adults, it's affected kids, it's had a tremendous impact on the mental health of adolescents. Um, We're seeing an increase in children and teens needing mental health care. And since the pandemic began, there's been a 24% increase in emergency room visits by grade school children. There's been a 30% increase for teens urgently in need of mental health care. So this has disrupted uh, families, it's disrupted teens. And we've noticed that you know kids are spending more and more time um, on video games and doing gaming because of the isolation and, and, and everything that the pandemic is bringing 
bringing uh, bringing to our society. Uh, you know, seventy percent of kids under the age of eighteen are on a console, um, and and they're on a console. Um, you know, for hours and hours. For example, in 2020, half of the children and half of the teenagers are spending more than six hours a day online. That's a 500% increase over 2019. Um, and, and some of it is, is their way of coping with things like anxiety and depression. They're using gaming and cell phones to be an escape and to numb the distress that they're going through. So this pandemic has had tremendous impact on children's mental health. It's had tremendous impact on their, on their feeling of isolation. They've been pulled away from their friends, from their school environment, and, and more and more of them are turning to using some type of uh, of device as a coping skill to deal with everything that they're going through. But definitely it's having a, an impact on things like gaming, cell phone use, um, and, and, and the mental health of, 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 these, of these kids. Yeah, I definitely can share in that. And I'm sure my son is included in those statistics, even if he wasn't asked, but um, definitely a rise over the pandemic. And a lot of it, you know, they play games now with others. And so my husband and I have kind of struggled with, okay, well, this is, you know, this is interaction that he wouldn't have, you know, he's his only child. And so I know a lot of parents struggle with this because it's like, you know, that's where their friends are. They're on the games, you know? So it's a really, it's a, it's, man, it's a really conundrum we have found ourselves in and that our parents didn't necessarily deal with. So um, I'm really glad that you included those. So let's start talking about, you know, identifying. How do we start identifying as parents when there might be an actual problem and what are some of the next steps? So what are some of the the triggers, the red flags, and, and then what do we do next with those? I think there's different things that parents need to be aware of, depending on the on the behavior that's going on. And, and my book lists different different warning signs that parents should know about. You know, for alcohol, there's different warning signs that a parent needs to know about for uh, marijuana use. Um, there's different warning signs that are in the book. If, if you suspect your child might have an eating disorder, what are the warning signs for that? If you believe your child might be self-harming themselves, what are the warning signs for that? So there's different warning signs uh, listed throughout the book for different types of behaviors. But overall, what I recommend to parents is pay attention to any changes that you see in your child. These might be changes in behavior, they might be changes in in physical appearance, Um, any changes that you see in your child, um, those can be warning signs. And the more of these changes that you see in your child, the more concerning it gets to be. Um, and, 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 And many parents see these warning signs, they see these changes and they, and they may have a tendency to write them off as just adolescent, normal adolescent developmental behavior. And in many cases, that, that may be true. But in other cases, it may be an indication that there's something more serious going on. So when you see these changes that, that, that as a parent seem to be out of the ordinary, a little bit different, you want to follow up on those. You want to get an assessment done to make sure that there's nothing going on that, that may be more serious or more alarming. So don't ignore them. Pay attention to them and follow up on them. Um, because as a parent, you want to know what's going on underneath the surface. So overall, um, 
pay attention to any changes, significant changes that you see in your child's behavior, their appearance, their attitude, things like that. Okay, perfect. And so I'm thinking of the person who might be thinking right now, okay, I have seen a few, you know, looking back, I could say that I see a few things. Of course, the pandemic has, has muddied those waters because we don't know how much of it is due to the pandemic, but okay. I've noticed a few red flags and I want to take the next step and I want to get an assessment. What is, is the pediatrician, is that the next right person to talk to? Who would you say to speak to first? I would say, Talk to your child first, have a conversation with them, Uh, see if you can uh, open up a dialogue with them about what's going on. Sometimes that will work. Most times it it may not. You may may be confronted with a child who is in denial. You may have a child who becomes very angry and that discussion sort of falls all apart. But at least you've made the attempt to, to have a discussion. And when I talk about having a discussion, I'm not talking about just listening to what your child is saying. I'm, I'm suggesting that we all work on trying to uh, listen to what your child is feeling. You know, Claudia, we're very good at listening to other people's words, but we're not so good a lot of times listening to the feelings behind those words. So that's a skill that we can all work on uh, as, as parents and as individuals. And I have a workbook that accompanies the main book that, that I wrote specifically for parents that talks about some of these listening skills that, that, we can, that we can all develop. So that when we're talking to our child, we're not just hearing their words, more importantly, or just as importantly, we're hearing the feelings behind those words. So I would say begin with a conversation with your child, see how that goes. Then the next step would be to get an assessment done, because you really need to have a professional assessment done so that you get information on what's really going on. Not just about the alcohol and drugs. Yes, you'll need an addictions assessment from a professional like myself, so that you get an understanding of the drugs or or what your child has been taking, the extent that they've been using the substance and for how long, and that you get a diagnosis. But you also need um, a complete physical examination to make sure that there's nothing you know, physically going on with your child. And you need a psychological assessment to see if there's any underlying issues that may be contributing to your child's using a substance, either to rule it in or rule it out, but you need that kind of information. So that's why I have an entire chapter in my book on comprehensive assessments so that parents understand that if they have a child they suspect is using a substance, what do they do? What kinds of tests should they insist upon? then you want to know, well, where do I go to get these tests? Who do I turn to? And, and I recommend that you talk to your family physician. That can also be a source of referrals. You might want to speak to the school counselor. They can give you referrals. And then you can also refer to be referred to the mental health services throughout your community. So there's a lot of places where a parent can get resources and referrals for these kinds of assessments. But the bottom line is you need to get the assessments done and they need to be comprehensive. Mm, Really helpful and valuable. And in the workbook that you mentioned that goes along with the book, does that give some prompts or some um, verbiage? I'm sure a lot of parents are thinking, I don't know how to this is new, this is new territory for me. I don't know how to bring this up or, you know, express my concerns to my child without, you know, inciting some defense on their side? Does it kind of help with some of the language? And if not, can you share some some language that you might be, you know, some open-ended question type language you might recommend? 
Well, I think you hit on the key right there with open-ended type questions. And yes, the workbook is, is there for parents. I wrote the workbook to help parents. I wrote the main book to educate them and help them get an understanding of adolescent substance abuse. But I wrote the workbook to help parents because so many parents are going through so much uh, with, when they discover that their child is using a substance that I wanted to give them a workbook to help process their feelings, whether it's anger, whether it's a, a feeling of failure. Um, I, I wanted a workbook that had exercises in that workbook that helped them work through so many of these emotions that they're feeling when they're confronted with this issue. And the workbook also addresses uh, communication. How do I talk to my child? And there's, there's a couple of exercises in there on, uh, or some suggestions on how you can talk to your child with open-ended questions, uh, following up on, on what they say, rather than just get yes and no answers from your child. How can you elicit more information from them? Uh, because I wanted parents to be able to start to develop these skills where they can communicate with their child. Um, and, and the child gets the sense that the parent is really listening, not just to their words, but to the feelings behind those words. And that takes, that takes practice. We can all learn that skill. And whether your child is seven or eight or nine years old or 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, that's a skill that, that, we as individuals can learn that benefits us in our communication with not just kids, but with adults. Um, and I wanted uh, parents to understand that they can develop this skill. They can start to develop this skill, this listening and communication skill that will benefit them, not only with their kids, but, but with uh, you know, others as well. Really, really important. I'm so glad that you have that as an additional option. And it really, you know, it makes me think about even just, you know, I pick up my son from school and, you know, the default question is, you know, how was your day? And then the default answer is fine. You know, and I, I, even as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I can be better about saying, well, what was the best part of your day? Or what was the most challenging part? You know, just kind of eliciting some more, it, it, it does become very, especially at his age, you know, like one worded answers. So I appreciate you just reminding us all that we could be a little bit more attentive to listening and inspiring more deeper conversations with our kids and not just assuming, well, that's their, you know, this is their age. They're just going to give me one, an one word of answers. Um, so I think that this uh, can be applicable to so many instances of our, our lives, even outside of addiction, but I so appreciate you writing this book and giving us some tools and resources to understand better of what to do. Because again, like I said, this is a territory that maybe a lot of us have not walked yet. And it, parenting is that the whole journey is that. So this is one more piece of it. So thank you so much for the work that you do, Richard, and uh, just share with our listeners where they can find your book. Um, my book is uh, available on Amazon. Um, it's also available at the book's website. I would encourage everyone to go to the book website where they can read a little bit more about the book. Um, they can order either the, um, the, the main book or the workbook. Uh, they can contact me through the website. They can send me questions or they can send me messages. Um, and the book is available both in electronic form for I think $2.99 um, for people who like to read like 
kind of reader. Uh, or if they prefer to have a paperback copy, they can order the paperback copy there as well. They can also order the paper uh, paperback workbook for parents if they'd like to have that. The book's website is helptheaddictedchild.com. Um, so if they just go to that site, they can read endorsements, they can read book reviews, and they can order the books. And um, the, the, the website again is www.helptheaddictedchild.com. Thank you so much, Richard, for all the work that you have done to help us understand this a little bit better and know what right action to take. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Claudia, so much for, for helping and for participating in this discussion. I think that uh, your comments and your observations um, help make this a, hopefully a more meaningful conversation for your listeners and uh, for the parents. Uh, I hope that it's been beneficial for them. So I really thank you for uh, agreeing to invite me to the program and to talk about this issue that is so important to so many families. Thank you to Richard for this really valuable and insightful conversation. He has also graciously offered to our listeners to do a follow-up Q&A. So if you do have questions, please email them to me at claudia at peaceadvocacygroup.com. That will be in the show notes as well. Again, that's claudia at peaceadvocacygroup.com. Send me your questions. I will make sure that I get them to him. And if we have a sufficient amount warranting a second follow-up interview, I will make sure to arrange that and get your questions answered. Have an amazing rest of your week, and I will see you here again next time. 